You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Well, good morning to you all. It's great for me to join you in your living rooms or wherever you may be watching this on our final Sunday service for the year. This is our final Sunday service. Of course, we'll be having our Christmas Eve service this Friday evening, uh, but we won't be having any service next Sunday. And so I have the great joy and privilege to bring you the word for the final time on a Sunday Um as part of our Every Nation live stream. And so if you don't know who I am, my name is Richard, and it's great that you're joining us. And uh, we're going to be wrapping up our Advent series, which is called The Promised King. And we've been looking at a, a familiar passage in Scripture. Certainly, if you've been around church any length of time, you'll know this, the, the Christmas story. But before we get to there uh, in Matthew chapter 2, uh, I was thinking two thoughts really around Christmas time as we come into this time of Christmas. And the one is tension and tradition. And so tension, I'm, I'm not talking about tension, maybe this tension at home. And certainly there is with just a lot of, lot of stuff going on in our world right now. But oftentimes, this is a season where we have to hold things in tension. For, for instance, on the one hand, it's a season of celebration. I mean, look at the word. Words of love, joy, peace, hope. Uh, these are these are good words. These are lofty words. And we also know at the same time, it's a season for a lot of people where if there's any anything that's been challenging in your life, it often gets heightened at this time of year. It's a season of struggle for many, whether it's relational strains, family strains, uh, financial difficulties, work pressure. And the like. And so we have to hold those things in tension. And sometimes we feel guilty if we're just not quite feeling the Christmas spirit. And what does it mean to feel it's like Christmas time? Um, and then also if we're, if we're actually in a, in a joyful time, we maybe feel guilty when we see people around us struggling. So we have to hold that in tension. The other thing we have to hold in tension is that Christmas is Arguably a uh, one of the most major holy celebrations or religious celebrations, certainly Easter and Christmas in the Christian tradition are the top major uh, religious celebrations, uh, holidays. But we also know Christmas is a major secular, arguably the major secular holiday. I mean, if you don't believe me, just take a walk through your local mall. It is celebrated widely by people who are not religious, who don't hold to uh, necessarily the, the Christian faith. And so we have to hold those in tension. And, and each side, the religious and the irreligious, kind of want to appropriate culturally. So we have some people on the one hand who are very upset that it seems that we're trying to move Christ out of Christmas, right? And, um, you know, maybe in your workplaces, you've been discouraged from saying Merry Christmas, say Happy Holidays or Season Greetings. Um and so for those people, it's like, we need to put Christ back into Christmas, uh, keep it that holy religious celebration. And then there's a lot of the world that looks on and says, uh, aren't we beyond fairy tales? Aren't we beyond these little myth stories that we tell our kids about a little baby Jesus? What is the relevance of the Christian story? And so just to highlight that, this is a news uh, headline I came across that was quite modern. And it says, as shopping center bans the nativity scene, this, this shopping center didn't want the nativity scene. We ask, is it time we took the Christ out of Christmas? Is it still relevant in a modern world? Is it still relevant to have a baby Jesus, a Joseph, Mary, shepherds, wise men, animals in this barn-like thing? What is the significance or relevance of that? And then there's other people. We lament the commercialization of Christmas. And I've, I've, put, I've used this image before, but I think it's a great image that just highlights what maybe people feel. It's called the hipster nativity scene. And so we have a modernized version of 
what uh, what we think the nativity scene. And and for me, that this picture, it's funny, but it also it has the religious structure of a, of a story, an ancient story that we're going to read now. But it's kind of been um, taken over by more modern modernized feelings, and so. I don't know where you stand in that tension. The the second part, though, is not just the tension, it's the, the traditions of Christmas. And I don't know if you have certain traditions as a family or you don't have certain traditions. But certainly as we come into this time every year, it doesn't surprise us. Oh, wow, it's Christmas again. I didn't expect that. Every year we expect that. We know at the end of the year comes Christmas, comes New Year's. There's certain traditions that come with that. When you put up your tree, if you put up a tree, do, how you decorate it. When do you sh- open up gifts? If you open up gifts, Christmas Eve, Christmas morning. Do you tell your kids about Santa Claus or don't you? What, there's so many things that go into Christmas. Traditions are really helpful because traditions allow you to not have to think about it. We just do it. Why? This is how we've always done it. And so from one aspect, tradition helps us overcome sometimes just the that novelty is overrated. Like novelty always have to have something creative, new, innovative. That is helpful sometimes, but also that can be exhausting. And so the traditions of Christmas really help us, uh, root us in some ways. But the danger of traditions is because they become so familiar to us, we lose a sense of their meaning, the sense of their awe. It's just like we just do this because we do this. I mean, we just... You know, it's it's incredibly jarring for some of these traditions to clash with our modern worlds. I mean, walking through a shopping mall and just seeing all that's going on at Christmas time and the hustle and bustle and designer bags and gears and clothing and you're getting into that Christmas spirit. And in the in the background, you're hearing something about a virgin birth. And it's like, and struggling still, maybe a young child will turn to you like, what's a virgin birth? How does that happen? I was like, okay, well, here's a moment. And so these all these tensions and these traditions. But coming back to the Christmas story, because I in our world, the, the and pastors' world, it's like every year, you know, you're going to have to preach a similar message. So there's so many things. It means you, it's so that there's a pressure sometimes to have a novelty even about this time of year. How do I freshen it up? And so in Scripture, the discipline to remember, the practice to remember is repeated over. And some 200 plus times in Scripture, the call is to remember, remember, remember. And uh, because we're prone to forget or we're prone to do things but forget the meaning of doing it. And Jesus had a big critique of the people in his day, not so much that they were traditional. And so sometimes we have a pushback on tradition because tradition is bad. No, tradition isn't bad. It's just when we disconnect it from any kind of meaning or significance from ourselves and we just go through the motions, there's a disconnect there. And so I love what the Austrian composer said about tradition. He said, tradition is not to preserve the ashes, but to pass on the flame. In other words, traditions can be there powerfully to help us pass on the uh, the passion the story, meaning, significance, purpose of something to another generation and another generation and another generation. And so that's where we find ourselves as we come into this time of year that doesn't catch any of us by surprise. And perhaps we hear a story that's very familiar, but we're asking God, God, how would you help us to remember? Would you help us not to to hear something maybe we've heard a lot, uh, certainly if you've grown up in the church, but somehow to immerse ourselves in this story? Because here's the thing as well, but the tension with a, a secular holiday and a Christmas holiday is they have competing narratives, competing stories of what this time of year is all about. And um, the question for you and I is, which story are we immersing ourselves in? Which story is forming us most? Make no mistake, you're in a story. The question is, is it a good one? Is it a meaningful one? Is it a beautiful one? Is it the right one? And so the opportunity for us is to enter into the Christmas story. So with that said, let's turn to Matthew chapter 2. It's the text we've been using for the last three weeks. We're going to read 
uh, verses 1 to 11, and then we're going to look at the story that God invites you and I to immerse ourselves into, to be rooted in and help frame our world. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Uh, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. I got to think, you're the king, and then these wise men, these um, come along and say, hey, where's the new king? It's like, if you're the king, that's going to be a bit troubling, a bit unsettling news to you. And so what he does, he assembles all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. There were many prophecies predicting the birth of Jesus, the birth of Messiah. Here's just one of them. It says, And you, O Bethlehem, is in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Not true. He's not going to go and worship him. He's going to go and take him out because he's threatened by baby Jesus. And so after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so we've been using those gifts as a way to uh, frame this series for us of the significance of those gifts that are presented to baby Jesus. But I want to point out in this story that we've read uh, of the last couple of weeks, you know, the main characters here, got three main, besides baby Jesus, he's a pretty significant main character. But you've got the, the Magi, these wise men, they, they represent the Gentile world, the, the people that weren't really part of the promised people of Israel. Israel, you've got King Herod, who represents the Roman Empire at the time, the dominant ruling political power at the time. And then you have the Jewish priests and scribes, these are the, peace, the people that knew of the prophecies, were looking out for uh, the birth of the Messiah. And you have not just these three characters, but three very different postures towards the news of Jesus being born. The Magi come seeking. They have a posture of seeking out this king. You have Herod who's threatened, and so his posture is opposing. He's threatened by Jesus and so opposes this. And then you have the Jewish priests and scribes, which is kind of baffling because of all the people that should have been seeking, what do they do is they pretty much ignore Jesus. They didn't even take the five-mile journey from where they were to go and check out and see this baby Jesus in Bethlehem. It's kind of ambivalent for whatever reason. They're ambivalent to this news. And so they bring these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And these are gifts that are fitting for royalty, that are fitting for a king. They're costly luxury items that are suitable for the birth of an important person. And so I love how N.T. Wright, one of my favorite uh, British theologians, he says this, the birth of this little boy is the beginning of a confrontation between the kingdom of God and all its apparent weakness, insignificance, and vulnerability in the kingdoms of this world. And you can see it in the hearts of King Herod and the Jewish priests. Those kingdoms are beginning to knock up 
against each other. We're not just celebrating some cute, meek and mild baby Jesus. This is a king that comes to disrupt our lives in all the best ways. And so the tradition of remembering this story and celebrating the Christmas story every year is meant to remind us, meant to remind you and I to be immersed in this particular story of Jesus and obviously all its implications, right? And so the third gift presented by the wise men, myrrh, is going to help us do just that. Myrrh. What on earth could myrrh do to help us? How on earth are we going to spend the rest of our message speaking about myrrh? And that was a question when I sat down to prepare this sermon. I was like, how on earth am I going to prepare a message on myrrh? What is myrrh? Myrrh, I'm glad you asked. Myrrh is a gum resin that was very familiar in the ancient world. It's actually even used still today. It's a gum resin from a tree that's still used for incense, for fragrance, and medicinal properties. Um, and so I'm not going to do a deep dive into that. But as I began to study myrrh, fascinatingly, myrrh shows up in Jesus' life in, at three significant times. First one obvious, at his birth. It says, Matthew 2.11, they're opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And then we see myrrh show up at another significant event in Jesus' life. Myrrh shows up at the cross. In Mark chapter 15, it tells us that they, the Roman soldiers, offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And so it's trying to be used as a a medicinal, a sedative to dull his pain while he's hanging on the cross in excruciating pain. And Jesus, Jesus chooses not to. He chooses to be fully present to the moment of the crucifixion, fully present to his pain and suffering, and therefore fully present to the pain and suffering that sin brings to our lives. What a thought is maybe some of you find a season of struggle before you, that Jesus isn't aloof to that, that Jesus is immersed in our pain and our suffering with us, alongside us. And then there's a third time that myrrh shows up in Jesus' life, and it's at the tomb. It tells us that Nicodemus, when he had come to Jesus, who had come earlier to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. That's a lot. Like for those of you, it's about 35 kilograms. That's a lot. That's a lot to carry. Uh, So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. It's a lavish amount of myrrh and spices, and it's an embalming fragrance. It's a fragrance to preserve the body, and, um, and it was to preserve it from decay. And so... We celebrate that not as a, as a, as a fragrance of death, but as a fragrance of resurrection, because we know the story, what happens there. Three days later, Jesus rises from the grave. And let me remind you, when Jesus rose from the grave, he smelled very good. <laughs> he really did. He, he was embalmed with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe, these lavish fragrance. And I can't help but just see the significance of that, that it's the, it's the fragrance of new life, new birth, new start, resurrection, new creation, not a fragrance of death. And so these are three significant moments that we find myrrh, this random gum resin, show up in Jesus' life. And perhaps myrrh is going to help you and I be immersed in a story, a great story, a beautiful story, a true story, a good story, in which we can have sense of meaning for our world, even in difficult times like we struggle with now. And so the promised king, what is it about this promised king? What is it about this baby Jesus? And so I want to point out as well, those three times that Mo, uh shows up in Jesus' life, um, the same characters are involved, you know, Mur 
at his birth. It's the Magi, it's the Gentiles. It, it's significant that, that Jesus has come for the entire world, not just a select few people. Gentiles come and seek and worship him. At the cross, who's it? It's the Roman soldiers that try to give him myrrh. And so we see the Romans there. We see the, we see the, the symbolism of the political power, the kingdom that was ruling and reigning at that time. And then thirdly, we see Nicodemus, a Jewish man, a Jewish leader, come and um, bring uh, myrrh to his uh, tomb. And so I want to use those three events, those three significant events, and how myrrh shows up to remind us and help us remember. And so firstly, myrrh at the birth of Jesus reminds us of the incarnation. It reminds us that Jesus is the promised king, but Jesus is a promised king who is a humble king. That a king would give up his power, give up his um glory and come and choose to enter into our world in the most vulnerable way possible as a baby as you and i are brought into this world completely helpless totally reliant on our parents and jesus chooses to do that and it shows us the great reversal that jesus has come and he never ceases to be god he never ceases to be a king but he lays that aside it's the great reversal this king becomes our servant This king comes to serve us. And it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. It's the great reversal of things. We don't deserve what Jesus gives us. Jesus didn't deserve to die on the cross. We deserve that. But he took that for us so that we get the life that we didn't deserve. You know, all our rebellion, all our failings, all our sinfulness, Jesus says, give that to me. And he puts on us all his perfection, all his right standing with God, living the way we should have lived. The great reversal. It's a beautiful aspect of the Christmas story and reminds us that's the story you're invited into. And so whether if you look at your life, whether you look back on this year and you said, man, I've screwed up again. You know, I've got regrets. I've got relationships that are strained. I've got financial problems and difficulties. That this is a relevant story to you. There is a king, but a humble king who will sit with you in those moments and begin to help you out. It's the upside down aspect of the gospel. And it reminds us that God is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. God with us, not when things are going great. God with us, not when things are going. God with us, whenever, wherever. God with us. The second thing, the myrrh at the cross. This reminds us, myrrh reminds us that this promised king is a savior king. It reminds us of the atonement, everything that Jesus accomplished at the cross. I mean, that's an Easter message, I know. That can be unpacked. But it's a reminder that this story isn't just about a baby Jesus, but it was a prediction of what he would go on to do and ultimately give his life for. And it's the, it's the promised king who becomes our savior on the cross to rescue us from sin, ourselves, Satan, from the things that want to uh, keep us in bondage and to make us right again before God, not based on what we do or don't do, but based on who he is and what he has done for us. And so it reminds us that God isn't just with us, but God is for us. God is incredibly for us, not against us, not distant from us, not aloof, not ambivalent towards us, but God is for us, rescuing us. And then lastly, myrrh at the tomb. Myrrh reminds us of the resurrection, that this promised king is a reigning king. 
He is a reigning king. He is the promised king who became the first fruits of a whole new creation. His resurrection is the first fruits of a whole new creation. God came about to fix the things that were wrong in creation, in society, and us personally. And Jesus, when he rose from the grave, is the first fruits of what God is going to still come and do. And so when we have doubt about where the future is heading, we're to look back and remember the resurrection. That's the first fruit. God is going to come. This king will return one day to put right everything that still remains uh, dysfunctional, that still remains broken, that still remains um, shattered as, as, as a result of, of our sin. And so it shows us a forward back aspect of the gospel, right? Not just an upside down or inside, but forward back. In other words, we look forward to that. We have a hope anchored in the resurrection of Jesus and we see that God has not going to give up on his creation, is going to give up on us and then we bring that future into our present and we live as hopeful people because of this story, because we're immersing ourselves in this story, not a story of COVID, not a story of governments coming and going, not a story, not, we're not ignorant of those stories, hear me out, we're not ignorant of those things in our world, we're just saying that reality is not all there is, there is a greater reality and it's one framed by this king, this reigning king, this promised king, and he is moving future, the future towards his intended purposes and invites us to uh, embrace and immerse ourselves into that story. And so there you have it, myrrh. Who would have thought? Well, gum resin would be so significant to show up in three incredibly important aspects of Jesus' life. Not to say that the other aspects of Jesus' life are unimportant. His teachings are incredible. But these three events in Jesus' life, these three, these three events in Jesus' life really are the three significant aspects of the story you're invited into. That God is with us. God isn't just with us. God is for us. And we see that on the cross of Jesus. And that not God is with us and for us, but God is restoring all things. God wants to restore your life, wants to redeem and restore your life, your, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, sometimes we look at our lives and it's so shattered and so broken, or we, we think, how on earth could anything good come out of this? And then they said the same thing about Jesus' life. How could anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, he came from the other side of the tracks part of town. It's like, nothing good comes out of it, and that, that's Jesus as well. And so, don't underestimate what Jesus can do as you allow him into your life and we enter into his life through this incredible Christmas story. And so as I wrap this up, I can't help but come back to those three postures, those three characters in the story there, the posture of seeking, the posture of opposing and resisting, and the posture of just being ambivalent or ignoring. And I wonder this Christmas right now, what is your posture to this story, this Jesus that invites us into, is it going to be one of ambivalence, of ignorance, that's no relevance to me? Do we feel threatened by another king in our life? Someone else is going to call the shots? Do we want to oppose and resist that? Or will we, like the most, most unlikely people on the planet, the Magi, these Gentiles, these pagans who should have been far from God, are we going to be like them and have hearts of seeking? And that when they find Jesus, when they finally find what they're looking for, that they fall down and worship this Jesus. I pray that that's my posture, that that's your posture, despite all the things that are going on in our world and in your world, that we would have a posture of these kings as they bow their knee to this 
promised king. And with that, let me pray for you as we transition into the rest of our service. Jesus, we are so thankful that you are a humble king, that you come to us, Lord. Not when we're pretty and all dressed up and have everything ready and put together, but when we're just at our worst. And you enter into our story in the most humble way. And not that you were just a humble king, but you are a savior king. That you did something to get us out of our mess. And that if we would trust you with that, that you indeed would bring a beauty out of our broken lives. And not only are you a humble king, a savior king, but Jesus, you are the reigning king. And remind our hearts that as we see our world sometimes just look like it has no sense looks like it's in chaos, looks like it's going backwards, that our hearts would be settled, the fact that you are a reigning king, that nothing is beyond your control, nothing is out of control in your world, and that you are moving things along, and that we get to join you in that story. And so I pray that this Christmas, God, as we perhaps are struggling or celebrating or find ourselves kind of in between those tensions, God, that the story that we immerse ourselves into would be this story, this story of the promised King in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.